0: Welcome, First Friends Church family. We are so glad to have you tuning in because here at First Friends Church, we live to glorify God together by loving Him, making disciples, and proclaiming the gospel. One of the best ways to strengthen our faith is by diving into the Word of God together during our Sunday gatherings. So if you don't have a church family, we would love to have you join us. All there is to know as you plan your visit can be found at firstfriends.org. Now let's go to our lead pastor, Nathaniel, with this week's message.
1: When people look at my sons and say to me, they're just like you, that makes me so happy. There are some exceptions, usually at home. Usually when my wife says that, it's accompanied by an eye roll. Oh, They're just like you. But when it's meant positively, there are a few statements that fill me with greater joy. This morning is our second Sunday in the series, At the Core, in which we're exploring the core values that guide us as First Friends Church in meeting the vision that God has given us. Here's our vision once again, in case you've forgotten. As First Friends Church, we live to glorify God together by loving Him, making disciples, and proclaiming the gospel. Last week, we talked about the value of authenticity. Today, we're going to consider generosity. Our Heavenly Father, God Almighty, is a generous God, and as He changes and transforms us more closely into His image, and our generosity begins to look more and more like His, He takes pleasure in us. Just as I take pleasure in my sons when people say they look like me or act like me, so God takes joy when we, His children, look like Him. Before diving into our Scripture passage for the morning, I want to make clear that generosity is not just about the act of giving. It's also about the heart attitude that accompanies the act. One cannot be generous without giving, but one can give without being generous because we lack the accompanying heart attitude. If you don't have a hard copy Bible with you this morning and you would like to borrow one for this service so you can follow along, the ushers are coming back down the aisles with some copies, and as you catch their eye or raise your hand, they'll be glad to give you one. And I'll just reiterate, as I do each week, if you don't own a hard copy Bible don't just borrow this one, accept it from us as a gift. The context of the passage I'm going to read is that the Apostle Paul is writing to the Christians in this… in the ancient city of Corinth. And in this particular part of 2 Corinthians, which is the name of the book or the letter that he's writing, he's encouraging them to participate in an offering that was being taken up among many of the churches to benefit a specific region of churches, of Christians, that were in desperate need. So, the Corinthians… the Corinthian church had already pledged their support… They had already said they were going to participate in this offering. So Paul wasn't demanding something of them, but he was encouraging them to follow through on their commitment, and then he was giving them some instructions as to how they should go about contributing. So I'll be reading this morning from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. And again, if you're not familiar with the Bible as a book, you can find 2 Corinthians most easily by going to the table of contents. It is close to the end of the Bible, so you also have the option of going to the end and flipping back until you get to the book of 2 Corinthians. I'm going to be reading from chapter 9 of that that letter from verse 6 through 15, which is the end of that chapter. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ, and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, Their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. This morning, we'll be looking at four aspects of generosity taken from this passage. The principle of generosity, the manner of generosity, the foundation, and then the results of generosity. So, we begin with the principle. Paul starts this section with a a simple, logical farming analogy. He compares our possessions, our money, to seeds in the hands of a farmer. And by possessions, he's primarily talking about money. It's it's fair to extrapolate this principle to include time and talents, because we often speak of sharing or being generous with our time, talent, and treasure. So it's fair to do that, but I wanna be clear that in this context, He is specifically talking about money, and I know that there are many people who think that the church talks too much about money, or at least some churches, but money is a big deal. Jesus addresses it regularly. Scripture talks about it a lot, far more, perhaps, than maybe some other hot-button topics that we feel far more free to discuss within a church context. God addresses money because money is often a problem, I think, as we can all attest. Money is a problem when we don't have enough. Money is a problem when we have too much. Money is a problem when we have just enough. Scripture says that money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's not evil in itself, but it can lead us so easily into idolatry, right? So, Here, Paul is is talking to these Christians, these early Christians, and he's talking about money. And the principle that he lays out is really simple. It's not earth-shattering at all. If a farmer plants just a few seeds, their harvest is going to be small. If they plant many seeds, then their harvest is going to be far greater. It's simple logic. Paul then takes this farming truth and applies it to the finances of those who are disciples of Jesus and the children of God the Father if we plant or sow our possessions grudgingly and minimally, the harvest that we will receive is likewise going to be lean and miserly. But if we sow liberally and freely and sacrificially, the word he uses here is generously, the harvest that God gives will will be abundant. Now, I, I do want to just caution us. We'll address this a little bit more later on, the harvest that God promises is not necessarily a harvest that's financial. And that's often where we also get in great trouble. We're like, oh, oh, if I I sow generously, I'm going to reap generously, and it's going to be money. But we'll see in a moment that's not necessarily true. But this principle, it's the underlying one upon which Paul bases what follows, what he's going to say next. And that brings us to the manner of generosity. So he establishes first the principle, then he goes on to describe the manner of giving. What should our giving be like in order to be considered generous? The first point is that a disciple of Jesus should give. We should be generous. Each one of you should give. That's how Paul begins the next verse. Each one of you should give. So, that applies to everyone. Dr. Scott Hafman, a New Testament scholar, puts it this way, giving is to be free but not optional. Because a lot of us read that verse, and we might think… Um, Each one should give what he has purchased in his heart to give, what they have uh, purposed rather in their heart to give. Oh, so I could give zero. You can. That's not what the verse says. It says that each one should give, and we need to make sure that we take that to heart. Um, and, And you notice that this doesn't differentiate by age or by income or by amount of savings or investment or economic or social status. It's a principle that a disciple of Jesus should give, which always is going to lead us to the next question. How much? How much? You know, Paul answers that, but not very satisfactorily. We would far prefer, I think, that He give us a black and white amount or percentage, and we would prefer that He tell us whether that's on the net or the gross, and we would prefer that He tell us how often it needs to happen. We would still rebel, but we would like to know what we're rebelling against. Each one should give what we have settled in our hearts to give. So, in other words, the measure of amount is based upon our hearts being at peace with ourselves and with God on the amount or percentage or frequency with which we give. So, this also means it's not about comparison. It's not about looking at at what the person next to me or my friend or my relative gives. That's not part of the equation. Today, when we ask how much we should give, though, I think what we're usually asking, or at least the subtext, I can speak for myself, the subtext, the real translation of that question is, what is the least I can give and still be okay with God? And I think if we're honest with ourselves, many of us, I'm not saying that's all of us, I'm saying that that's me. And I've shared with you before during our series, A Generous People of a Generous God, how um, some of my story, and I'm not going to go into all those details again, but just the, the many different ways that I attempted to give less and still be at peace with God, they all failed. They all failed. And I realize also, because this always comes up when we talk about um, giving in a New Testament or contemporary context, the idea of the tithe, 10 percent, and an argument is that's an Old Testament concept, which is true. It's not reaffirmed in the New Testament, the tithe or 10 percent of giving and returning that to, to the Lord. But I do think that many people have benefited from using the tithe as a baseline. Uh, It's helpful to have a clear commitment and a clear amount. I think it's a great place to start. But even if one is faithful in tithing, in other words, in giving to the church or giving back to the Lord 10% of their income, our attitude is often, it's it's so easy to slip into that, well, 10% is God's, okay, but the 90% is mine. And we're going to see in a moment that's wrong thinking. This passage though is clear, the amount is a heart issue between God and the giver. Now, before we get too excited about that freedom, I want to back up and just read the very beginning of chapter 8 in 2 Corinthians. It's the same context, Paul's still talking about this offering that's being received, but he describes what's happened in the Macedonian churches. Verse 1, and now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. That's not economics as I understand it, but in God's economy overwhelming joy combined with extreme poverty equals what? Rich generosity. Makes no sense. But what that's reminding us of, as Paul gives us this example of the Macedonian churches, is that, again, the amount or the frequency I'm going to change that. The fact that we are called and invited to be generous is not based on how much we have. C.S. Lewis says that a good principle for giving is that we should give enough that we feel the pinch. Um, That is a paraphrase uh, on my part. But he says that if there's not something that we have to change about our lifestyle, if there's not a little pleasure that we have to give up here or there, or something we would like to do that we're not able to do because we're giving too much, then perhaps we should consider whether we're giving enough. And then finally, we need to arrive at the attitude of giving. This is all under the 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 context, the higher context of the manner, you know, how we we should give and then how much it's between us and God being settled in our hearts before Him. But then we arrive at the attitude. It shouldn't be reluctant or under compulsion, but it should be cheerful. God loves a cheerful giver. And that cheerfulness, that's got to be sincere, right? Which is a challenge. I know that. Uh, I have, there, there, there are many photographs that were taken. Um, of our family as, we were, as I was a child because we had to send out these things called prayer cards. So every so often we would take photos and remember this is no digital photography so you just got to take about 50 and get them developed and hope that in one of them the six people will all look semi-decent. And I hated those, those sessions. Oh, I just dreaded them. And, you know, it's all, you're like dying inside. and It's like, okay, everybody smile. And so often those smiles appear like. <clears throat> <laughs> so this cheerfulness of giving, it's not a fake. It's not like, okay, smile. Smile while you get this injection. Smile while you're under this torture. It's God working in our hearts to make us more Generous because remember the principle at the beginning. God does not tell us that He will condemn people who sow sparingly. We really need to understand that. Generous giving is cheerful giving, but He doesn't say in that principle, God will judge those who sow sparingly. It's just a natural outplay of the way that God has created human reality and the universe. Give sparingly, reap sparingly. The Christian should give, but that which they have determined in their heart before God to give, and they should do so not with resistance or grudgingly or in comparison, but with joy and cheer. So then, let's ask the question, what is the foundation of generosity? Like, what motivates it? Why can we be free, or why are we free to be generous? I find it very interesting in this passage, that Paul does not mention gratitude as a motivation for generosity. Certainly, the Bible is full of reminders to us that thankfulness to God for all He's done for us and all that He is like, that's right. It's good. It's true. We should be grateful. But here, Paul does not make the foundation of generosity for the Christian. Gratitude out of what God has already provided or given. And I think that's because gratitude looks back at what God has already done. So, the temptation then, if if our sole motivation is gratitude, then our temptation would be to give out of the surplus. So, just give the extra that we have. And I know from my personal experience that if my focus is to give the extra, to give the leftover at the end of the month, to give what I don't need. I actually really liked that principle when I was trying to live by it, because I never had to give, because there was never anything left over. I made sure of that. And nowhere are we as disciples of Jesus told that we should give only out of our surplus only out of what we will not miss. Again, reference the Macedonian churches out of their extreme poverty, their joy welled up in great generosity. The foundation for Christian generosity, and we see it here in verse 8, is faith in God's provision. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, You will abound in every good work. Look back for a moment at the generosity principle. The one who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, while the one who sows generously will reap generously. In verse 10, Paul reminds us where our seeds come from. Now, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed. Oh, Hang on a second. So that seed that I'm planting, the seed that I'm sowing, where did it come from? Well, it came from my hard work and it came from my job and it came from uh, the IRS. I guess if you get a refund. But then it still came from you. No. It was never ours to begin with. Everything that we have, no matter the conduit through which it arrives in our possession or under our control, it's from God. Where do our seeds come from? He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, this He is God. So this means that the seeds that we sow, they're not even ours in the first place. All that we have is supplied to us, given to us by God. In, um, at our church in Brazil, we had a pretty large, what we called a benevolence fund. And uh, the needs are great as they are everywhere, and um, we often had the opportunity to help members of our congregation financially with specific challenges that they may have been facing. And I loved being that messenger. It was so much fun to be able to be that point person to call them or text them or write them and say, hey, um, because it was often a situation that they hadn't come forward about or they hadn't asked about, but we would hear about through different ways and be able to say, I just want you to know that um, the leaders of the church have um, wanted to to give you a gift to help with this particular thing and, and share the amount and say, I just need your bank account information so we can make that deposit. And I remember thinking at the time how fun it was um, and how it was like no skin off my nose. I used to feel a little guilty about enjoying those calls so much. I was like, it's not costing me anything. And the Lord kind of whacked me on the side of the head with great love and gentleness. When, and it was this like aha moment where he was like, Well, why should it be any different with what you call, quote, your money? The church's money I've provided, your money I've provided. I don't want you to feel guilty about blessing people with the church's money, but I want you to feel that same freedom with your own. Because it's not your own. Because it's mine. And I've entrusted it to you for you to sow and sow generously. I think a great threat to true generosity is that we think of our money as our own. And that leads to the idolatry of money. We worship money and what it promises. You, you all know this. It's one of the easiest forms of idolatry into which we slip. Because money promises us so many things, security, fun, comfort, advantage, peace, relaxation. Scott Hafman also said this, as another quote from him, the call to give is a call to flee the idolatrous worship of the dollar and the self by trusting in God's grace alone for our happiness and security. So even for those of us that, are, that might be faithful with the tithe, but have that attitude of holding back the 90%, which is mine, we understand that, that, nine, that mine is for my self-fulfillment. It's for my purposes. Like because it's mine, and I've already given God His part, I don't really need to consult Him on how I use this 90% because it's not His. It's mine. It's not His business. If we allow the Lord to truly revolutionize our understanding of our resources as belonging to Him, we will become even more generous than we already are. And I want to say, I know, I've seen, I've experienced that First Friends Church is a very generous church. So this, isn't, this doesn't come as chastisement. It just comes as a greater vision and opportunity for what God can do in and through us inevitably we're going to be bombarded with thoughts like, if I give, I won't have enough for… fill in the blank. Our faith is in God's gracious provision for our needs, though, rather than in money. He is the one in whom we base our security, fulfillment, our pleasure, our rest, our peace. And Paul here, he does mention the blessings that come through generosity. But remember, even these blessings are from the Lord, and as I said earlier, they're not always financial. The increased reaping that is promised as a result of sowing generously, did you notice what it is? It's an enlarged harvest of your righteousness. Oh, that's not nearly as fun. I thought I was going to like give $10 and get 1000 back. Now I'm just going to get more righteousness? But remember, the righteousness of God is something we can't buy, we can't deserve, we can't earn, we can't make ourselves righteous. That's a true blessing. And in verse 8, Paul writes, so that in all things at all times… So this is God who has increased your store of seed, so that in all things at all times, having all that you need… So your needs are taken care of by the provision of God. You will abound in every good work. So when that obsession with money is off of your mind and off of your heart, and when there's faith in the provision of God that He will meet your needs, then we're free to to serve. We're free to abound to Him in every good work, and the tyranny of having to work absurd hours to make sure that we maintain our lifestyle or have our certain income. There's a peace that comes with being able to let that go and a freedom to invest in the kingdom of God. The harvest of generosity is that the generous person grows closer and closer to God, becomes more and more like Him, has a greater and greater impact on the community and the world around them. And Paul also mentions that we will be enriched in every every way, not just financial, but the purpose of that enrichment is what? Increased generosity, so that you will be generous on every occasion. So we can be absolutely confident in God's provision for our needs. We We don't want to live there. Let's be clear on that. We don't want to live in a place where we are constantly trusting God to provide, or perhaps even giving ourselves into places, giving because God has led us to do so, but giving, giving ourselves into situations where we're then entirely reliant upon the Lord to provide for us. We don't like going there. We don't want, go, want to go there. That's where God's calling us to go, because His provision is the foundation of generosity. Very quickly, I just want to touch on two false foundations, right? Two false motivations. The first false foundation is God's displeasure or God's anger or God's judgment. Remember, there's no hint of that in this passage, none at all. I mean, there's the simple principle. So, we have to understand that principle is still there. So, if I plant one seed and one seed grows, one plant grows, I don't drop my shoulders and say, well, God is displeased with me. That's why I only got one plant out of the one seed I planted. God's displeasure here is not given as a motivation for generosity. So it's not a negative motivation. It's not the stick, right? It's not God's judgment. The second one, the false motivation, is the health and wealth gospel, which is not really the gospel at all. It's even a misnomer to call it that. But it teaches that if you give your money now, sacrificially now, and by giving that usually means give to the church or give to one particular iconic minister or teacher or preacher, whatever it might be, if you do that now, if you give now, even if you don't have it, even if you can't afford it, give it now, God's going to bless you financially over and above what you give. God's an investment bank, and He's a guaranteed return. There is a guaranteed return on our investment, but it's not financial. And and under this thinking, generosity becomes a means of manipulating God. But I just want to be clear, that is not even hinted at in this passage. We're promised, promised great blessings that follow a generous lifestyle, but those blessings are a growth of righteousness and gratitude. We're not to give primarily based on surplus, which is looking back to the past nor on the hope of getting more, looking to the future. But in the present, God supplying all of our needs, faith in that, we are free to give. And finally, the result of generosity, or results, plural. I want to read just the final verses, 11 through 15, again, you will be enriched in every way So that you can be generous on every occasion, and through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God because of the service by which you have proved yourselves. Others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ. And your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. First result Worship fueled by gratitude. Your giving will result in thanksgiving to God, overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of you, others will praise God. Have we ever thought that generosity actually fuels worship, our own worship and also the worship of others before God? If we live into a lifestyle of generosity, one of the effects is that we grow in thankful worship for the Lord. Secondly, the gospel is proclaimed. Christ is magnified, the gospel is proclaimed through the generous acts and nature of God's people. This is because it reflects the nature of God Himself. Notice how Paul ends this passage, thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. He's talking about the gift of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness and redemption made possible to us through His life, death, and resurrection. Is there any greater image of generosity than the cross of Christ? God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. As we live into generosity, God's gospel is magnified in us and to others. Um, Also note here, because I said earlier that gratitude was not intended in this passage to be a foundation for our giving. It's a result of generosity not interesting because we usually think of it the opposite way. We think that because we are grateful, then we will give. And Paul saying it's a result. Generosity leads to gratitude. And thirdly, and finally, maybe this is the, the most obvious result, God provides for His children through us. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, Paul writes. That's the needs of God's people are being met. The church corporately, our needs are met, and then also individuals who are in need within the body of Christ, their needs are met. Our faith is built, their faith is built, and we grow together into the joy of the Father. Here's some final thoughts. What we may need to do I don't know where you are in this journey of heart generosity, but I think it's worth all of us just revisiting the state of our heart as it relates to the idolatry of money. And remember, the idolatry of money can strike anybody regardless of how much or how little you have or earn. It's a universal temptation. So just revisit that and say, Lord, is there? have I allowed that to creep in? Do I need to renounce the idolatry of money, of finding my safety, security, and meaning in my financial statement? The call to generosity is a call to meditate on God Himself and His indescribable gift, recognizing the effect that our generation will have is not only to meet the needs of others, but also to further the gospel and promote the worship of Jesus Christ. So, as we ask God to lead us into greater generosity, and that's the next thing we can do is ask Him for that, we can do so confidently that this prayer pleases Him because it is a prayer to be more like Him. Because we, the church, we are a generous people of a generous God. Imagine how our church's gospel influence in our community would become even greater as the Lord makes us more and more like Him by deepening our commitment to and joy in generous living and generous giving. To be known as a a generous community, joyfully giving, sharing, helping, Um, free from the idolatry and bondage to money. And I'll close with this. We give because of who we already are. What do I mean by that? Last quote from Dr. Scott Hafman: Our giving is not a decision to participate in the projects of the church, but an expression of the fact that we are the church. That is, that we belong to God and to one another. I invite you to stand. We'll continue to worship our generous God through music. And as we do, I just invite you to open your hearts and your minds and your bodies to Him who is generous, who has been, who is and who will always be generous because that's His nature. And I want to remind you of something that I said last week when we were talking about authenticity, that we have maybe this fear of coming to the altar for prayer because of what we think others may be judging us or because we think that that's kind of reserved for just major crises. But I want to see us grow as a, as a church and the culture of sharing our burdens, sharing our needs. And no matter how trivial that prayer request that weighs on you may seem, you are still invited, Please to come. The Lord takes it seriously, and we would like to as well. So if you would like to come and have someone join you at the altar and pray for you or with you or over you, come to this side of the altar. If you'd rather just come and be worship and pray and bring your need, bring your joy, bring your heart to the Lord on your own, come to this side. Let's worship.
0: Thank you for joining us for this week's message. One way you can connect further with First Friends Church is through our website, firstfriends.org. There, you can learn about our equip groups as well as our upcoming events for all ages. On Sundays, we gather at 9 and 10.30 a.m., and we'd love to see you there. Have a great week!